What happens when you take a redneck fishing guide and pair him up with a master beekeeper? Well, we're about to find out. Join our host Ken Milam and John Swan as they help you brave the sting of beekeeping to reap the sweet rewards. This is The Hive Jive. All right. We good? Yeah. All right. I'm ready for a week-long nap. That's because you've been playing uh, state beekeeper. I have. Um, it was uh, way more exhausting for some reason. I'm not necessarily sure why than any other of the clinics or conventions I've ever been to. And I think part of that is because... I was also, you know, involved with the coordinating and planning and, and, like, would get pulled different directions to either help or fix this or that or the other. Yeah, if somebody hollered, you had to go be the yeah. the hollerer. Um, and the theme, this is actually, this is kind of hysterical. This will tell you how, like, out of it I was. Mm-hmm. But the, the theme of my entire week and weekend there was, what do you mean I'm supposed to go talk in two minutes? <laughs> <laughs> Like I got uh, on one day, we I was helping with multiple different factions of things, and I was supposed to be doing the people's choice tasting, but I had a couple of the honey queens, and and Jorge was there helping, and um, I I thought I was done with with everything for a little bit, and I still like they served us lunch at eleven, and I still hadn't eaten, and it's getting close to like two thirty, <laughs> and I went over there and I sat down and I picked up the sandwich and I opened my mouth and I didn't even get it near my mouth. And the current president at the time, Blake, <laughs> walks by and he stops and he looks at me and he goes, you know, you're supposed to be on stage in two minutes, right? And I just sat there and I looked at him and was like, what are you talking about? And he was like, you're moderating the next panel. And I was like, what panel? It's <laughs> like, what? That Blake, uh, Blake Desert Sh- Honey? Blake Shook, yeah. yeah. Um, and I was like, dang it. So I had to get up and go do that. And then the the Honey Queens and I, we, we were having like a sparring contest the entire time to see who could be more... Um, sarcastic and and full of humor uh, it was it was very entertaining but it was like constant just jabs back and forth about you know little inside jokes and stuff um one of the honey queens was actually from wisconsin she's the current american honey queen and her name is hannah and she is hysterical and um we were teasing her that uh if she was nice we might get her a bus ticket to go home <laughs> But she she had to earn it. And, uh, you know, so that was an ongoing joke with me throughout the whole thing. At one point, um, she had said something, said something snarky to me and I had a response and she's like, whatever, you can't get rid of me that easily. And I responded back and I was like, that's right, because you ain't got a bus ticket. (laughs) You can't go nowhere. There you go. But uh, they they kept picking on me and they they gave me, I had to redo one of the presentations. And so I was sitting out there where I thought I could kind of, you know, have a little bit of anonymity and, and work on stuff. And, and instead, they all decided to sit down around me and eat. And uh, they were giving me like a every three minute countdown to let me know how much longer I had before I was out of time. <laughs> and so they would pretty much take a bite of their food and they'd lean over and they'd be like, 39 more minutes. <laughs> and then it'd be like, 34 more minutes. I was like, you are not helping. And they're like, just checking. Just want to make sure you know how much time you got. <laughs> yeah, you have to go do your thing. Yep. But uh, there was there was multiple occasions where it was like, hey, you're up next or hey, you're on this panel. And I'm like, I'm on that panel. Why am I on that panel? (laughs) (laughs) Um, I did get to interact with several different listeners. And that was really cool, really fun. They, you know, they uh, came and and would ask questions or, you know, express that they enjoyed the show and everything. Um, One of them, however, you do owe a gentleman an apology. Uh, Uh, Well, because, see, 
he met me at one of the other clinics or conventions and then heard about the show. And so he started listening and he loves it. And he's, you know, he had mentioned to his wife about this beekeeping podcast. Bullies! And, yep, that right there. That's it. <laughs> That's why you owe an apology. Um, the first time she ever listened was the Halloween episode and they were in the car on the way up to the convention. <laughs> it's boobies. Yeah, and uh, right whenever it came on, you just happened to be screaming that. <laughs> And she was like, I thought you said this was a beekeeping podcast. And, it is. And he's all like, no, 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 look, look. And he's pulling up Instagram trying to find the, the photo of us in the shirts so he can explain to her, no, no, look, really, this is what it's about. And he's, it's a shirt they're wearing. It's all about that. So that was, he comes up to me. I'm hiding behind a table and he comes up and he's like, you got me in trouble. And then he was like, well, actually, Ken got me in trouble. So... Oh, uh, we're sorry. Yeah. <laughs> we're just talking about the shirts. It was just the shirt. <laughs> just the shirts. She may never listen again, so she may uh. not hear that apology, but he'll appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> Tell your wife, we're sorry. Yeah. Won't happen again until next year, next Halloween. I, no, I mean, no, we, I don't think we're going to come up with anything for Christmas. They had those shirts there. The shirts with the Mary? Yeah, the B Mary. Really? They had them there. They had versions that of them. That looked pretty there. good. Um, I liked theirs. They had three versions. They had one that looked similar to what you had shown had me. The bee with the Mary, writing out Mary. Yeah, but then they had um, they had one that just had the bee, and then it said Mary, kind of like in a smile underneath it. Uh -huh. um, and then they had it in like uh, they were all long sleeve too, though. Huh. I don't remember. I think it's the ones you showed time. me it's were Christmas. short sleeve. Yeah, yeah. Mine was good stuff. But, I don't I don't like long sleeves. So. You but, never seen me a long sleeve unless I'm in a bee suit. <laughs> And then, and even then, you're uh, yeah. You said you got stung in the chin again, <laughs> three or four times now. Same place. You know, it's not the bee's fault. You keep pushing that chin out there. I know. It's when I bend over and I do something. I was oh, I'll talk about it on air. I opened up uh, one the, the top bars. One of my top bars looks like I need to feed the hell out of it because it's got. Plenty of drawed comb, but they've been eating on it. And I'm going to have to, I don't know if it's so got... So what, what, the only thing that matters is what do they have? Like, what do they have cap food stores-wise? Didn't open it all the way to well, the end. You can't answer that question. Okay. You well, they got plenty of empty comb, so I put uh, half a gallon in there yesterday. Holy crap. How did you get half of it? Multiple jars? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I put, you put it in there yesterday? Yeah. Didn't you just tell me you were afraid it's going to frost or snow in like two days? Well, yeah. Well, but it's going to be 70 degrees. Put it in there yesterday. It was 60-something degrees when I put it in. 66. It's going to be up to almost 80 degrees today. And it gets cold Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Then it starts warming up Thursday. And by next Saturday, we're back in the 70s. Okay. But it was, and it was 2 to 1? Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. It's 2 to 1. In fact, I, it might have been a little more than that. But uh, it's it's plenty, plenty. Plenty thick. Yeah. Well, so you, you'll end up with sometimes a lot of empty comb in there, but it, that's the same, you know, you, you have to equate it back to how many bees you have and then how much food they need. So if the front of that box has four combs of solid bees, you only need four combs of solid honey for that colony to technically make it through the winter. If they've got 10 combs of solid bees, well, then you need 10 combs of solid honey. So that's why I was like, well, how much food stores do they have? Okay. So you've got to you've got to at least get it's in. It's small, so it doesn't need that much. Yeah, so you, you just made me feel better. Yeah, you just got to you got to at least get into where you see. Now, if you went 
through all the empty comb and then you get up to the brood nest and you start finding brood and you have found zero food, uh-huh. that's an emergency. Okay. But if you get up there and you're like, right. oh, well, here's one, two, three, four, five combs of capped honey. Because they've got, what, 12, 12 combs in there? Yeah. So you could have had... Uh, we just looked at the back from the yeah, back end. You could have just had four of them back there that yeah. were empty, or even only two, and then the next ones could have been fully capped. Mm-hmm. So you gotta, if you're gonna do the inspection to figure out food stores, you've got to actually look at the food stores. And uh, honeybound hives. Wow, that's all I'll say. You know, from from three or four hundred bees to thousands of bees now, and I mean bunches of thousands. And because we opened up both of them, and they come boiling out. The, 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 they're even thick on on the the second half, the the medium, the honey high, the honey the, super. Yeah, they're honey super. Yeah, yeah, they're thick in there. So we got, you know, from three or four hundred to that one, I'm going to say ten or fifteen thousand, because I didn't pull the super off the. The meat at the brood box, but the 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 top was full. The the honey super it was plumb full of bees, and everything everything I opened up we opened them all up because we changed out and put the vented uh, inner covers on them. Next thing I figure we're gonna probably look at them this next Saturday when it warms up again, and we'll all we'll put all of the. You told me I need to take. All of the feeders off of them and put long boards on everything, right? What do you mean by long board? The long and the long reducer. Oh, the entrance the, reducers. Front, yeah, entrance. Yeah, reducer. yeah. We're take not the front feeders out yeah. and put the long entrance reducer. Yeah, put the put the full size introducer back hole. in. Yep. Yeah. Um, so. If assuming, if you if you use the mathematical equation for the cells and the comb and all that stuff, assuming that they filled up all four of those empty combs that we put in there with solid brood mm-hmm. at least once over, mm-hmm. that's thirty six thousand bees, which is a normal full size colony that I would fit inside it's, of a it's Langstroth box. So yeah, so that that would be good. I mean, even if they did half of that, that would be way better. But yeah, it's mm-hmm. probably in that thirty thousand range. If they no, if they at I least did one complete cycle through that, yep. um, then I think that'll be uh, that'll be good. Now let me ask you something. Uh, you know, I've been talking to to the commercial guy in Florida, great guy by the way, and uh, he raises nothing. He uses nothing but Italians. But I understand why because he's a commercial. Yeah, he, we he he has no worry. He does not worry about honey. Right, but so here's the deal, and there's a reason we don't talk about commercial aspects on the show. Okay, everything they do is in direct opposition or contradiction to what a backyard beekeeper would do. So I try not to mix that in okay. because it'll confuse the hell okay. out of everybody. Okay, well, so it's. A, it's a... I know, but I'm, but I'm telling you, the whole the whole first season, like I know that you're you're really enamored with him and you want to get him on the show, and we will, but we got to get him on the show in a format that fits the well, show, yeah, yeah. Because I'm it's it's kind of like the conversation that you had with Justin. Justin is a commercial beekeeper, and uh-huh. everything he says is going to be a contradiction to what we need to teach the backyard beekeepers. Well, let me ask you this then: something that we have already talked about. If you have a weak hive. You could have a nuke, or you could have a another weak hive, and you mix them together. Yeah, you can combine them. Now, 
let me ask you this. Do you, would you raise bees to do that just in case if you needed them? That's a, not this time of season. That's a, we can talk about that in season two when okay. it actually comes around okay. to doing splits and making a nuke for that purpose. So we'll, we'll talk about that in season two. <laughs> um, now, on a commercial beekeeping note, though, you and I got to go to the screening of the Pollinators documentary. Great, great doc. Yeah. Great documentary. And that is all about, so it's it's really interesting. Um, Ken has been desperately trying to find it, and I have been trying to get him to understand that. Um, you can't find it. it, it was, it's not released nope. yet. Nope, you can't find <laughs> it. doesn't it. exist. You can find lots of interviews with the people that wrote it or were in Damn it. Damn good interviews um, to them are, too. Yeah, but if you're interested in, in the pollinators in general, if you're kind of curious about what's currently going on uh, or want a better perspective of migratory beekeeping and, and the reason that it is the way that it is today and how all that integrates back into, you know, your food and, and crop rotation and the soil nutrition and, and all that stuff and how it all fits back together, that's what that documentary is is about. It's about how the commercial beekeeping world and the migratory pollinators are what they are today because they have been forced to adapt to try to keep up with our unsustainable food model that we've created in our, our agricultural system. And so we got to go see that, and it was really awesome. Um, good. It's really good. Yeah, it, and that's uh, and, and one of the, the gentlemen that Ken was mentioning is actually, he has a very small part in it, yes, but his, his bees were featured in it a lot and stuff, so Ken got to got to talk to him and, and get some insight on everything. But we got to see it because it was um, kind of like a press, an early screening of it. Okay. I don't know. It came to Austin once for South by Southwest. It was featured in the, fin, uh, the film festival here. And it's currently finishing up the festival circuits where it gets all of the nominations and awards and stuff. That's and then good. afterwards... It will it will go either directly to release or it will come back to theaters for actual theater release, um, but it probably won't be until next year sometime. I would guess when it's actually open to the public, where you can either get it on like a streaming service or be able to go to the theater and watch it. So it's a shame because it's that good a fl uh, it's a that good a documentary that people need to see this because it teaches everything that shit teaches the circle you know men here on the show on my radio show i uh, have been talking to bob lusk and uh we were talking bob uh, lusk for oh, for those boss. of you that don't know yeah he's the pond uh, boss he, he does is everything the pond. dean of the institute of higher of higher pondology <laughs> That's what I nicknamed. Eric nicknamed him the Wizard of Water. He is the water guy. I mean, he knows everything about water. And what we were talking about was healthy water. And and, and consequently, then I got to talking about bees and how we got to talking about, uh, you know, Sam Kaufman. Sam Kaufman, if you want to look him up, thehumanpath.com. Sam is just awesome. You know, that's what's great about the shows that I have, the the radio show. We have so many awesome guests. I mean, they are and awesome. Very unique to each yes. niche field and, yes. and stuff and things that you wouldn't necessarily even think about on a day-to-day kind of basis. Like Sam, you know, you go for a stroll because you're just going to go for a walk. Yep. And Sam can turn that walk into the most educational oh. trip you've ever seen. He'll, He'll show tell you, you every, every little plant and tell yeah. you what that's used for in medicine, like the algorita bush. Uh, I never knew the algorita bushes. It has the the roots you use in gastrial. 
you know, if you have stomach trouble with your stomach, fix it. Uh, the the she's gonna have to it's, go check yeah, it's, it out. Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, he he literally, you'd be going along, and he'd be like. That one over there you can eat. This one over here you can make a tea out of. That one you can make a salve yep. to cure these types of skin conditions. That one will kill you. That one will put you to sleep. You know, like, it, it mm-hmm. just, he knows them all. And propolis, since we started talking bees to him, he's, Ken, propolis is awesome. He says, I take it now. And I, I told him how you said freeze it and grind it, and that's what he's doing. He's mixing it with uh, beeswax and... Olive oil and making a salve on it out of it. He says that's the greatest stuff there is for for a wound. Yeah, the when and that's you know propolis is the immune system of a beehive. It's it's their antibiotic, antimicrobial, mm-hmm. antifungal. It's their all-purpose antiseptic and then also their glue and yep. it seals out all the cold and. But it's it's amazing stuff. The that's freezing good. and grinding it part that is a lot of people use that to make a tincture, and the propolis itself is so sticky and tar-like that if you take it and put it in the freezer, it becomes very brittle, and then you can grind it down, and then you can put those finer particulates into, like, an alcohol wash and create a tincture with it and then turn around and use that to put into a lot of these bombs and salves and stuff as well. So it's really, really amazing. Um, There's actually... There's some types of creamed honey that have bee pollen and propolis in it as well as, like, a health thing that you can actually ingest. So I wouldn't want to ingest it without it being mixed with all that other stuff. But... But just it but it's the circle of life how and that's what the pollinators it talks about how you know after world war ii all of these plants that made john sitting there we're talking bees ken yeah but after world war ii all these plants that were making powder to fire guns and huge shells turned into making fertilizer yeah. Something that a lot of people don't actually realize, and it's kind of frightening, um, your major companies like Bayer, mm-hmm. they originally existed because of the war, and it wasn't necessarily just, oh, we're making ammunition. They were making chemical warfare because we were afraid that's what was going to end up happening. And they had it all built up. And then when the war ended, they were like, well, what are we going to do with all this stuff? Oh, well, it kills things. And it's neurotoxins and it's all this other stuff. So they turned around and they turned it into pesticides. And that's where our pesticides originally came from. And if you actually see some, well, it was in the documentary, mm-hmm. you see some of the original... Nicoids. Well, no, 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 that, that's the new stuff. Uh, yeah. But if you see some of the original, we're, we're going to call it propaganda, it was mm-hmm. the original commercials for pesticides to kill bugs it was the exact same thing as the war propaganda that oh, yeah. you would see, except yeah. they took out our enemy and they inserted bugs. And and, and the, the talk, the, the whole cadence of it, everything was like, we're going out there and we're going to get them Nazis. But instead of Nazis, it was bugs. And, and it was, you know, and they had drums and barrels that they were just dumping as they drove through fields with trucks. And, you know, it's all this old black yeah, and white footage. Yeah, all of that, yeah. too. Yeah. Yeah, and so it's it's actually kind of frightening that... We, we didn't create this stuff, and, and this is actually the way the world works with a lot of things. We didn't create it because we saw a problem that needed to be fixed. We had a bunch of crap that is probably, you know, biohazard, and they're yeah. like, well, what can we do with it to get rid of well, it? Well, let's just spray it on bugs. Yeah, let's, let's put mm-hmm. it in this and let's and do that. And we make money and, off of it, too. Yeah, yep. And then, yeah, here we are. And then, uh, then now, but now they're showing how a lot of your farmers are learning, like, 
for instance, uh, uh, pumpkin growers and, you know, people that do that, you know, pumpkins, watermelons, cantaloupe, uh, cucumbers are learning to plant over here a blue squash, which all of the bugs, your squash beetles, love that blue squash. Plus, it comes out earlier, and they go to it, and then instead of having to kill a whole field, you kill one row. Yep, one little strip. Instead those, of a whole field. Those same um, those same farmers that are trying to do that, they're, they're, they're kind of radical in the thought of a traditional farming stance that we would all think of growing up where it's just, you know, hundreds and hundreds of acres of one crop. Right. And what they've done is they're like, okay, well, we're going to have a a mixed crop over here and we're going to plant that crop. And then when it comes down, we're going to put in this undercrop and all of that undercrop is basically all the nutrition and fertilizer that the soil should need. And then instead of green silage. Yeah. And then then they turn around and it's got, it's got natural flowers and Mm -hmm. stuff in it, all this stuff that's good for the bees. And then what they do is they kind of thrash it and lay it down. And then they plant the other crop directly over it or in it. And then that comes up and that crop that's been laid down now becomes your bedding for the pumpkins. So the Mm -hmm. pumpkins aren't actually sitting on the soil. Right. They don't get rot or anything like that. Mm -hmm. And they stay nice and clean. Um, and the soil has all this stuff that it needs and nutrition to survive without actually using a chemical for it. And then they put strips down through the centers of the fields that are pollinator strips. Mm-hmm. And then they do like you were talking about with the squash, mm-hmm. with the blue squash or purple squash. Um, and purple, then they'll go whatever, over there yeah. and they'll they'll do a little strip of it to attract everybody from it. So there are some farmers out there that are that are starting to learn that there's got to be better ways to do things and make it sustainable. But the, the circle of life in that that you brought up, it's kind of like. We start off looking at the pollinator and we say, well, the pollinators, something's wrong with them. Where are they going? And then it goes back and it looks at, well, well, how, why are we using them the way we are? And then we look at the agricultural system and then you come all the way back around full circle to the soil nutrition is gone. It's mm-hmm. in this huge deficit. And if that's the case, then the plants and stuff that grow are deficient in certain, you know, amino acids and fatty acids mm-hmm. and minerals. And so then the bee's food is deficient in those things. So mm-hmm. then the bee becomes deficient and it, it just circles all the way back around. The creature that you need to pollinate the plants to make the plants grow is in sickly health because the plants themselves are no longer nutritious and like it just goes around in this vicious circle. And now let me put throw something else in that. Uh, after yesterday we had this discussion on air with Bob Lusk and different ones. My, I had my eye doctor, Dr. Kyle Rhodes, come in. He did my cataracts, and we're sitting here. He says, Ken, that was so awesome visiting with Bob Lusk and everything, and you talking about the food and the water and the ground. He says, now let me tell you why we're having so much macular degeneration. He says, because we're not getting what we need from the plants. We're not getting the... The, like the green leaf plants, they don't have what they had 40 years ago. They don't have the, the, you know, everybody says, oh, well, you can eat a carrot and you see better. He says, not, not, uh, he says, not like it was years ago. Yeah. It's the, the old adage that you and I were talking about just a little bit ago before we turned the mics on was that, you know, back in the day, there is the old saying that an apple a day kept mm-hmm. the doctor away. And if you rewound back to like your great, great grandfather's time, mm-hmm. And an apple was extremely nutrient dense and it had Mm -hmm. a lot of vitamins and minerals and all this other stuff. So at that time of life, yes, an apple a day really could provide you with enough nutrition and vitamins and all this stuff to keep the doctor away. But nowadays, 
that apple has a fraction yep. of the nutritional value that it used to have. You'd have to eat a whole load of them to even equate what one apple used yep. to be. And that's the same for all of our food crops. And it affects us. It affects the bees. It affects the native pollinators. It affects all animals on life, all life on Earth, really. And, you know, as to the documentary where they were showing the old fields where they'd pull up an old field or a hunk of land out of an old field that has been a field raising corn, uh, cotton, whatever, for 40 or 50 years. That land looked like just crumbled up clay. Yeah, it was hard. It didn't really, right. it didn't do anything like you think it would have. Um, but the the one thing, too, that was kind of like eye-opening, um, I know because I grew up in that kind of Midwest mm -hmm. area up north, and there were... You know, that's how we, well, if I was over closer to my mom versus my dad, depending on where I was going, it was either you were driving through feedlots, just tons and tons and mm -hmm. tons of cattle all crammed into one space, mm -hmm. or you were driving through seas of nothing but wheat or corn. Mm -hmm. And now that's kind of switched over. If you go into another direction, it's corn or soy. And the corn, they had one little part in there where they talked about and I wish I could remember the specific number of the, but what they said is available land mass. Mm -hmm. There was this massive amount of corn. And then he stopped and he reiterated and he said, that's the available land mass, not the farmland. The entire land mass had predominantly just corn on it at one mm -hmm. point in time. And that is, you know, it's one crop. It doesn't add any beneficial anything mm -hmm. back into anything. All it does is pull out. Yeah. And unfortunately, a lot of it is, I mean, it's our own faults because we drove everything in that direction mm -hmm. by our choices and our demands of we want these three primary grains. Mm -hmm. And originally it was two. We wanted wheat and we wanted corn. And now soy's kind of come in there mm -hmm. as an alternative for protein and stuff. So, but it's, you know, I mean, we, we have in one way or another, be it, you know, Bayer and, and chemical warfare all the way back down to pesticides or our choices in what we wanted at our dinner table every day, you know, that meat and potatoes kind of thing where it's, mm -hmm. you know, I grew up in the bread basket and I want bread on every meal kind of thing. Our choices are what kind of drove that agricultural system to become so specific as a monocrop. And then as, you know, our munitions factories became fertilizer companies, then they had to show, okay, we can grow anything on a brick. And basically, that's what it's about. The the fill the fields now, you look at them, they're brick. Yeah, they go out there and they till and they plow, but there's nothing on it, nothing in it that is nutritious to us anymore. And so, everything is fed to that seed that it takes to grow to maturity and make its whatever we're going to eat, whatever they're going to sell. To us. Mm -hmm. And yep. it's fed to that seed. None of it is actually in the soil. When he nope. picked up the soil and broke it apart, there was no life whatsoever. Nope. There were no worms. There were no ants. There were no little microscopic bugs. There were no roots. Nope. It was just hard yep. chunks of dried earth. And then they've gone in. Now they're going in and doing these undercrops, uh, and, and they're putting in the the hairy vetch or the different kinds of ryegrass, and and then they go in there and they chop that in, 
And that's where hell he was you, just you laying it down on top. Lay, uh, yeah, just, they didn't even plow it in; uh, they just laid it straight down on top. And it, that's what's so great, you know. They're learning how to do this. And Eric was talking about. I was talking about it on the show. Eric says, "Well, Ken, there's almond farmers now that are doing that because they are they are learning if they do this and have flowers, possibly they can grow their own native bees again." Well, and they're, they're feral bees, but well, no native native bees. That's true yeah. because you don't grow a, yeah. a honeybee. Yeah. Um, but the feral bee population, the true native bees, which would be like your mason bees mm-hmm. and the wood bees and all the other stuff, absolutely, that stuff will start coming back. But there's not a lot of that out there because nope. of how they've nope. stripped the land. But one of the things that Les Crowder was talking about too, um, he was at the screening as well. He he gave a little talk at the end of it, but the. Um, concept of having a cover crop underneath the almonds they planted a specific type of clover and something Mm -hmm. else to kind of help keep the weeds and stuff Mm -hmm. out of there but so that they didn't have to spray for it and what they found was there was a specific type of wasp that would actually feed in that area and the insect that it fed on is a I don't remember they call it's not the peach boar but it had something to do it's a little fly that affects peaches but it also affects almonds and they found that that little wasp would actually kill the adult and the larva of that insect. So it was their own natural pest control system. But without that cover crop there, then those wasps aren't there, but the flies are still there. And so you've got to have something to take care of the flies. And so by eliminating a lot of things, I mean, a lot of times we really are our own worst enemy when it comes to stuff. No, I'll tell you, it's it's so... That, that that documentary is so good, and then it makes you think, and it starts making you think, and then you talk to people like Sam Kaufman and Bob Lusk and you, and, and then a, when Dr. Rhodes come in, and he says, you know, the reason our eyes are getting old is because we're not getting what we need. And he says, well, you then if you, you can go take lutein, or you can take this, or you can take this, vitamins that another company builds so we can – <laughs> so we can see right because we're not eating right. Yeah, we're not we're not doing what we should. Yep. Um, so <laughs> the the gentleman that was the kind of the the driving force behind the pollinators documentary, uh, his name is Peter Nelson, and he was the the director and and cameraman for a lot of that stuff. And there is a, another beekeeping podcast out there if you guys haven't ever checked it out. It's called Beekeeper Confidential. And it's Mandy Shaw and Mandy goes through and she does some amazing interviews with these different people. And she's got some real heavy hitters in there. She's got interviews with Tom Seeley and she's got interviews with Sam Ramsey, um, Dr. Sam Ramsey. He's the one who went through and actually discovered that when the Varroa mite feeds, it's not feeding on the blood. It's actually feeding on the fat cells of the bee. And that was revolutionary in how we looked at the Varroa mite. And so she's got interviews from these people. But her latest episode that just came out is actually an interview with Peter Nelson. So if you would like to hear more from his perspective yeah, on kind of what went into that and uh, how that worked out. You can go check out uh, Beekeeper Confidential with Mandy Shaw, and she has that interview out there. And I've already listened to it. I enjoy listening to her stuff, so it is pretty good indeed. So go check that out. And we had some actual, we had some interesting individuals that came to the conference, which was really kind of entertaining to me. Um, we had Dr. Dr. Dennis Van Inglesdorp, and he is part of BIP, which is the Be Informed Partnership. Mm-hmm. And they're the ones that go out and they do like the Varroa studies and they ask for everybody to send in data and like the Mitothon. You know, they're kind of all involved in that. 
So we had him there, and he actually spoke to a lot of different mite-related things and how they go through and they tabulate that data. And that was uh, it was really interesting to hear it from an inside perspective on like where it came from and how the data is used and then be able to see the data. They've been doing studies now for over 12 years. And so it wasn't just like yesterday to today. You could see a, an actual trend and they could show different trends and how, well, this commercial guy did this and this one didn't. And this backyard guy did this and this one didn't. And here's where like they built up a resistance to one thing because that's all they ever used. And you could see where the efficacy of it just dropped off entirely. And so that was really kind of cool to go through and see that. We had Dr. Jerry Bromenschenk and Jerry is from Montana and he's a talker. Um, there were, there were a couple of nights I didn't get any sleep because Jerry and I were in a conversation and (laughs) I, it was fascinating because even when we weren't talking about bees, like part of his career before he got too, too far off into other stuff, he was doing a job just because he thought it would be interesting and it would be a job to do. He was actually working at Yellowstone and he would go through and he would, he would do guide stuff, but he would also help the researchers come in. And he was one of the guides that actually could take the researchers back into the parts of the park that you're not allowed to ever go in because he knew the only safe places to step and walk. And so he sat there and he told some just fantastic stories, but his entire research, he is a self-proclaimed um, geek or nerd uh, or weirdo, even like when he was in school, you know, he was like, I was the weird guy. And he still is the weird guy. He does weird research that most people aren't thinking about, but it's actually like, it's going to be groundbreaking in some regards because right now he's actually doing acoustic monitoring of beehives and honeybees, which means he's listening to them. And they're listening to them on sub levels that even we can't audibly hear, either tones too low or too high. And they make a whole plethora of sounds that we didn't even know they made. And so now when you go through and you say, oh, well, the bees, you know, they have these intricate dances and they can do all these other things. They're making noise when they're doing it. Well, no, not just that, but that dance, like it doesn't explain certain things, right? Because they do the waggle dance and it might be to tell where a water source is Mm -hmm. or it might be to tell where a nectar source is or Mm -hmm. a pollen source or Mm -hmm. a home site. But then also in the home site there, we talked about it, you know, way back on one of our earlier episodes. They are so precise. They measure the internal dimensions. They know the airflow, the temperature, the volume. They know if there's blockages in their way, how big the entrance is, the overall cavity size, like all this stuff. And they manage to somehow come back and communicate that. And the only thing we know of the communication system is, well, they do this dance. That tells them where to go. But it doesn't answer how they know what the dance was for. Is it for food? Is it for a home? Is it for this or that? And then we have other things where, again, we see motion and sometimes an audible sound, like they'll do a buzz stop Mm -hmm. where if one of them's dancing for something that the rest of the group's decided is not going to happen, it'll get headbutted because another bee will be like, and like hit it. And that's, it's like, no, quit. We're done with that one. (laughs) And you can hear the queen, the queen quacks and pipes. She actually has an emergency sound too, which is very similar to the quacking and piping, but it has a definite distress tone to it. And those are all audible things that we can hear, but they're finding finding now that there's so many other noises that they make that there is some sort of of underlying communication or language that they have that they can use to spread these different things. And that, he was like, if we get far enough into it and we start to understand it and decode it, you can actually look at it as almost like a computer program 
someday in the future, we may be able to not directly, but somehow be able to better communicate with them. And to which that I laughed and told him, let's not do that because you add in communication with, um, you know, genetic engineering. And one of these days they're going to be like the Terminator and wake up and decide we're the problem. And <laughs> and it's yeah. all over. <laughs> well, you know, on the on the Varroa mite, uh, one of the things they were talking about, and I never really thought about this. You know, I've always wondered, well, why do we? Why can't we just do something about the Varroa mite? Because it's a bug on because a bug. Because it's a bug on a bug, and if we kill one bug, it kills both bugs. Yep. Yeah, and it's uh, that's a question that I brought up in one of the rapid fire sessions. There, you know, Monsanto came out and they did all these horrific things and killed off all these critters, and then they got bad, bad backlash for mm -hmm. it. And so then they turned around and they were like, well, we're going to help. So they, you know, them and Bayer get together and start sending out these pollinator packs that have all these different seeds. And those, they send them across the entire country. Those seeds are not native to everywhere. No. You know, they, they didn't really think that one through. And then they go through and they start talking about how, well, you know what? We're going to genetically engineer a bee so that the bee will be kind of like our corn. Like we've genetically engineered corn so that when the corn worm bites the corn, it dies. So we're going to go and we're going to genetically modify the bee so that we can turn off or turn on different little chemical processes in there so that when the mite bites the bee and that chemical goes into the bee or to the mite, the mite dies mm -hmm. or it stops its reproductive system or it mm -hmm. makes it, you know, sterile or whatever. And so I asked that question, like, how do you guys feel about that, that concept and thought? And it was really kind of funny because one of the people on the panel actually works with them as like a, a, a consultant and, and helping guide some of that stuff. And he was like, oh, well, we're not going to genetically modify the bee. That's not, no, we're, you know, it's illegal to genetically modify any animal or insect in the United States kind of thing. And I didn't raise these questions, but I was like, well, then what about the mosquito? <laughs> yeah. Because they purposely created yeah. mosquitoes that the the men were sterile, mm -hmm. and they did it by genetic manipulation, and well, then they released these these genetically modified male mosquitoes so that then when they mated with the females, the females were then actually not mated and couldn't reproduce, and that type of mosquito population like drastically decreased. And, he, and then he turns around and he goes, but what we are looking at doing is going in and turning off or on this one little receptor that will then do this thing, and it, it is specific just to the Varroa mite. And I'm like, so what you're saying is you're genetically modifying the bee, because I didn't mean you're adding genes that didn't exist, but you are tampering with their genome. <laughs> like, well, it was a very It was a very political corporate answer, non-answer. And then reconfirmation of how, like, he literally spun it to make it sound positive, and it's not genetic manipulation, but we're totally changing them. It's the same thing, and and I guess the first one I ever heard of in in changing uh, insects was the screw worm fly. Screw worm fly. Exactly. And that was a that mm -hmm. was an issue that actually they did, and they were dropping those out of the air in like little oh, yeah. parachute boxes. Oh, I've seen the boxes. Uh, we, we'd, if any time we found screw worms, Daddy'd have us in there and digging them out, and then we'd put them in the bottle, and then we'd send them to AM and and within a week or two, there's dropping boxes on our place or yeah. all around us because you know there was a screw worm outbreak there. Yeah. So I mean, it's all it's all in uh, the optics of it. It's all how oh, yeah. you spin it and how you mm -hmm. you present it. Uh, one of the other interesting things too that uh, Jerry Bromanchek was talking about is they train bees. 
like straight up trained bees. So I don't know if you if you've ever heard my me say my bees are trained. They love my chin. Yeah, um, <laughs> that's a. Uh, I mean, you got a big chin. You keep sticking it out there <laughs> in front of them. They can't it. resist, and they sting it every time they get a chance. So one of the other things when he was talking about training bees, it kind of goes back to some of the, the presentations and teaching that I do when we go through and we look at the anatomy of a bee. The bee and the antennae and the way that they actually uh, interpret smells, mm-hmm. it's down to the molecular level. It's, it's you know, more than 100 times more powerful than a dog's sense of smell. Wow. And they have been able to now use that to train the bee and bees, they can use these bees to find bombs and drugs and all kinds of other stuff, which is crazy. And we've also known, you know, that you can train bees to go towards certain colors. And now if you take color out of the equation and you give them a shape, you can train them to go towards certain shapes. And so for fun, at the university that he works at, they had the logo of their football team and the logo of their rival football team. And they trained the bee that if they only focused on the logo of their home team, Mm -hmm. they would get a sweet reward. They would get a sugar syrup, right? (laughs) And so they created a maze, and it was just like a mouse in a maze. And they turned this bee loose that has been trained to do this, and there were multiple holes in the boxes. And one hole would have their sports team's logo And all the other ones would have the wrong sports team's logo. They were all the same color, so there was no color involved in this specific thing. It was just the logo. And every time, the bee would fly around that specific box, and he would look at all of them, or she would look at all of them, and then she'd come back to the correct logo, and she'd fly through that hole, and then she'd do it in the next room, and she did it all the way through this maze until she makes it, you know, she makes her touchdown, and she she lands in the little thing of sugar syrup and starts drinking. And uh, they did that, recorded it, and then played it at the game where they were playing against that other team and said, you know, even our honeybees like us better. <laughs> so I tell you what, they're unique little animals. They are. Told. They are very unique. We actually had a gentleman, too, that came in, and he was kind of um, he was a late addition to the schedule, mm-hmm. and he ended up actually being phenomenal, and we are going to have him back again. But it, it definitely would be somebody that we should actually reach out to and have him on the show because it kind of goes back into your muddy honey mm-hmm. and how you were using it for the wounds and stuff on your leg. Mm-hmm. Um, Dr. Farhat Ozturk, and he came in and he did a presentation on the medicinal use of honey, and it was a just phenomenal standing room not even standing room only people were sitting down the aisles and along the edges of the wall people were standing in the back of the room afterwards i had multiple board members come up and tell me he absolutely has to come back again and then i had multiple attendees for the conference come up to me and say hey if you have anything to do with the planning for next year this gentleman has to come back like we would love to see him again so i will be reaching out to him and uh, asking if he'd be willing to come on and do an interview with us because that was that was absolutely phenomenal. But we where's he from? Um, he had to fly in, so it, it's a it's a, yep. it would be a phone interview. Um, yep. All of these people will actually will have interviews coming with them, but they'll all be phone interviews. So, uh, but yeah, so from from this conference, you know, I've I've been friends with Ann Harmon now for years, and she's we've talked about her on mm-hmm. uh, one of the episodes where we had Pamela in there. Um, World renowned honey judge. She's actually received an award from the president of the United States. Like she's a phenomenal little lady, and I mean little. She's like five foot tall. Um, but so we, we have interviews coming up with Ann Harmon. We have an interview with Cameron Jack. Cameron Jack is down in Florida and does all of the, the like entomology and bee education and stuff down there. And he, he works heavily in creating like youth programs and, and educating the youth. 
And so we'll have interviews with Cameron Jack. We've got interviews with Jerry Bromshek, and we've got interviews with Dennis Van Engelsdorp. So we've got a lot of, uh, of in- interesting interviews that we can go through and put in there whenever we have some non-beekeeping time frames and we need to, to talk about some more interesting things. So that's, that's also one of the fun things about being deeply involved in conferences like this is you make those connections and you meet those individuals. And then, um, you know, it's a uh, free show prep. That's what's crazy about this. You know, it's not. I just wanted to be a beekeeper, and now I'm 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 so much more because you have to. Okay, I look at this. Okay, yeah, bees. Now, oh, we got to have healthy water. Okay, now, oh, well, healthy ground. Okay, and healthy soil. Okay, now you have to. Okay, now if you have healthy ground, healthy water, healthy soil, it's making your eyesight better. Because you're having plants that grow that have more of the nutrients that we need. You see what it all ties into? And you know how my brain works. It goes in circles. (laughs) And I'm sitting there, damn. I mean, it's just, it's crazy. And then after I saw the pollinators, and it even made it worse, because it's sitting there doing the same thing I'm thinking, and it makes me start thinking more. And I'm sitting there, well... Then I quit because if I start saying what I want to say right now, John, it chew me out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so we we're gonna go through here and uh, we're gonna do a listener question. Okay. So this is from Frank, and Frank says, "I hope you're both doing well and living the dream." Um, I'm Frank. I just started beekeeping this year. I received a nuke at the end of June, and I am based in Cardiff, Wales. So he's from Wales. And the same as most beekeepers, I've been hunting down any knowledge that I can come across um, in one form or another, and I found your guys' podcast, so thank you for making it and continuing to spread the knowledge. I was listening to your latest podcast, and you guys mentioned the hive setup with breeze blocks and wood, and that's exactly how I've done it. Ken mentioned that the wood going through the cinder block, quote unquote, so they call oh, a breeze block. Yeah. yeah. I've had to think about that too, but I was like, I guess if you have them on their side, yeah. wind would go through it. It would be a breeze block, uh-huh. um, which is clever. Interesting way to, to talk cinder about. Blocks, yeah, it's what a cinder he's block. Cinder blocks. So for those of us here in the United States, um, they put the wood through the center holes on the cinder blocks, and then they strap them around, and it helps give the, uh, the hive extra support and kind of keeps everything nice and compressed. And it makes it bottom heavy. Yes, exactly. Helps it stay in place. Um, like for you specifically, it was because of cattle. Cattle, cattle come up. Now, for him, his are on a rooftop, so I'm pretty sure he doesn't have flying cows. If he no, does, he got, he got birds. That's a whole other issue. Big birds. Oh my God, those would be huge birds. Um, I did have a chicken knock over a beehive once, but it was a small beehive and a large chicken. So there you go. Um, <laughs> so anyhow, the. He actually added a link in here. He's got some YouTube videos that go through and show his setup and uh, what he's been doing. And he says that on the YouTube video link that he gave us, he has uh, weekly updates that he goes through and puts out there. He says, I use the British National Hive, um, which is basically a Langstroth hive, but the Langstroth is a bit longer. And you have to create two stacks of blocks to support the wider base for the hive. So, or the, the National Hive, I guess, is a little bit longer. No, 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 sorry. National Hive is yeah. shorter. The Langstroth is longer. But the National Hive is deeper, I believe. But it's the same concept. It's got frames. The frames are just a different shape instead of being I've as wide. Those. Yeah, yeah. You see them, you see a lot of the yeah. pictures on them where they pick them up and they look like they're yeah. almost square. Yeah. yeah. So that's the style of hive that he uses. 
Okay, so he says, I may as well make the most and ask a question or three. Here, I use an open mesh floor that has an inspection tray that can be inserted into yeah. it. So that would be the same concept as our screen bottom mm -hmm. boards. And a lot of them do come with like a corrugated yep. plastic screen that you can mm -hmm. slip in and out of there. Mm -hmm. And so he says, would you guys advise putting the screen back on for the winter to give the bees a bit more protection from the weather? Um, like I said, based here in Wells, so we have a bit of weather below zero, but not to, oh, zero degrees Celsius. You can do the calculations on that. That's 30 to 32 degrees. Okay. And then, but not too bad, uh, but it is very wet. So on that first question, absolutely put the screen bottom back in there or put mm -hmm. the put the insert back in to close off the screen bottom. Anything you can do to help minimize the intrusion of the outside air into the colony is going to give the bees the best benefit. The screen bottom boards, they can be used for if you wanted to call it like potentially integrated pest management to drop mites through the screen and then they can't get back up to the bees. So you could have it open in the heat of the summer, but all the rest of the time during the year, it does not need to be open, especially in the winter. Definitely go through and close that up, and that will help the bees regulate that internal temperature of the hive. It will help keep the humidity in check. It'll help keep the, the warmth and everything, the thermal regulation in there in check. So yes, absolutely put your, your insert back inside there and close off that screen bottom. So his second question, providing my colony comes through winter okay, my plan is to split the hive into two, probably late May, providing the colony has grown plenty and there are lots of drones about. I would like to run one as a single brood box with a smaller national super on top using a queen excluder, and then the other hive with no queen excluder using all the same size box, British national brood box. To compare and contrast the two setups, are there any obvious challenges that I face that you'd advise against? Well, let me go back and make sure that I understood part of this correctly, because we're we're talking about national sizes and things, mm -hmm. and I just want to make sure that... Uh, so the first one that he's going to use the queen excluder on, he says, will be a single brood box, so we'll call that a deep box, right. and then a smaller national super on it, so that's either a medium or a medium. shallow up on yeah. top of that. And that's the one he's going to have the queen excluder on. Then the second one, he says, the other hive with no queen excluder is going to be using all the same size box, the British National Brood Box. So I'm taking that as two brood boxes. Is that how you would take that? He's going to have yeah, two deeps, basically, right? Okay. Yeah. All right, so right off the bat, um, I would say if you're trying to do some sort of experiment, you have already shot yourself in the foot. Yeah, because he's doing one with a... They're, because yeah. they're not the same. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So you either need to do them both with a deep and a medium or both with two deeps, one or the other, because otherwise... What you've done, if you've you've already set the colony with the deep and the medium mm -hmm. up for failure, mm -hmm. because that one's the one that you gave the queen excluder to, so you've already trapped them down to a smaller compartment area, mm -hmm. and then the one you didn't give the queen excluder to, you've given them way more space than the other one has queen excluder or not. So you you first thing you need to do if you want a true experiment to see what's going to work better is everything has to be the same size or at least the same setup. Mm -hmm. So either do them both as a deep and a medium or do them both as double deeps. That's how you should start that experiment. Then the only thing when you do any type of scientific experiment, you only change one variable. You don't have multiple changes at a time or else you'll never know what truly affected mm -hmm. the outcome. So your one variable is going to simply be the queen excluder. 
put that queen excluder on to each, whichever one of the hives, as long as both hive setups are identical, mm -hmm. put that queen excluder in there, and then you'll have a better true idea of did the colony with the queen excluder make less bees and then ultimately make less honey, or did the colony without it you know, make less or more than the other one with the queen excluder. So that would be my my suggestion on that, and those would be the the hurdles that I would see come into that. Um, if you did it exactly the way that you wrote it, you're going to find that the one without the queen excluder that has twice the space is obviously going to do twice as well as the other one. But it's not fair because it had twice the space regardless of the queen excluder. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, set them up identically and then absolutely go through and, and try your experiment and see what would happen there. And his last question, his last question actually kind of goes back to something you started to say that I told you will be season two. Okay, so <laughs> his third question, uh, he says, and third and finally, I'm also to hope hoping to split and get a nuke running as a resource hive. Bingo. So how do I stop this hive from growing big and then needing it to become a full hive? Thank you guys so much for your help. If either of you are ever in the UK and fancy a cup of tea, please catch up and feel free to give me a shout. Thanks yeah, again, Frank. Earl Grey with a with a teaspoon of honey. Yeah, see, yeah. Ken's already got his order in. So whenever yeah. we uh, whenever we make it over there, Ken would like some Earl Grey with a Earl teaspoon Grey. of honey teaspoon of honey okay so the uh would you like to tackle that third question there the the nuke for a resource hive so the whole his whole thing is he, he wants to make a queen the on that nuke got to no i say no you don't think so mm -mm. what would i do if i was making a split and making a nuke where where would that queen come from the queen's the old queen that yeah. you're putting in there because she's going to swarm you're going to put your new queen into the into the uh hive where by the way I won't go there. I was, fixing, I was fixing to take off on something. Yeah, no, we're not talking commercial anything, Ken. <laughs> no, I know. Okay. Well, that's what, you know, they, the way the commercial guys do queens. Yeah. Well, they got them hundreds of yeah, them. Yeah, but see that, and we again, quit. I'm sorry. We're, we're not talking about anything commercial because the backyard beekeeper, there, there is a stark difference between I am keeping bees for the betterment of bees and because I have one colony and I literally have thousands of tons of more hours of time to dedicate to that one colony than a commercial beekeeper that has hundreds or thousands. And at that point, it is no longer a hobby. It is a business. And you have to make business decisions, which are drastic. So if you look at farming and you look at pigs, well, if see, somebody's... That's what I've done all my life. I've been a farmer and a, and a rancher uh, with my dad even. And, and that's the way I look at stuff. And... Uh, and Yes, I've always wanted to be a backyard beekeeper, but I also look at them as a as a livestock animal, which they're not an animal; they're an insect. But yet, they still are part of the livestock. Yeah, and and if you were a farmer who was raising pigs and you were raising them for market and for slaughter, and that sow puts off a litter of little ones, and you go through and there's three of them that are nice, decent sized, and then you got a little runt. That little runt dies immediately because you're not going to waste the food and the resources and everything else because he's never going to be big enough to actually get you the money that you need, and you're going to focus all of your attention on the three big ones. It's just like they showed that apple farmer out there. They oh, yeah. go through, and they have that one master bloom, mm -hmm. and they kill all the other blooms because they just want that one master bloom because it's going to make one big apple instead of five little apples. And then they found out that what would kill those other blooms was a poison. Yeah. That, that kills, kills insects. Bees. Yep. 
and, and it's yeah, seven. I mean, it's it was, crazy. It's seven. They spray the apple That's trees seven with seven yeah. to go through and actually kill the blooms, but that also kills the bees. And if they don't communicate um, and make sure all the bees are off of that orchard and they go out there and they do that, then the bees die. Or if they, if the next door guy is over there, well, I'm killing, I'm, I'm spraying seven. And here's, you got, you know, umpteen thousand colonies over here, but the next door guy, he's going to spray seven because he don't like the guy over there anyway. And, oh, so you lost some bees. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> that's, that's tough. So, um, back to the question. Okay. We got way off there well, really easy. Well, we're okay. coming back to circle. So, his question is, how do I stop the nuke from getting so big that it needs to become a full-size no hive? But, but then they're going to die. <laughs> the bees that are in there are going to die. So you got to have a... Well, what? No, <laughs> you're going to make a nuke with no queen. Take the queen out of there. It won't grow. Well, you're it right. It's going to grow. It won't grow. Everything no. will go to crap, and it's going to die. It's going to um, die. <laughs> so how do, you, how do you... If you put a queen in there, she's going to grow. But unless she no, doesn't okay, so, have... No, no, no. Hang on. Hang on. You're... you're, you're, you're Thinking about it actually way too much. Okay. The concept of a, and, and this is what I said, we'll talk about that next year, but obviously since Al Frank has this in his question, apparently we're going to talk about it now. <laughs> so No, you brought it up. <laughs> I, I was reading Frank's email. Okay. Um, all right. So the what it comes down to is like here in Austin, when you read the regulation on how many hives you can have in a yard per, mm -hmm. per quarter acre, mm -hmm. for every quarter you can have two hives and a nuke. It's actually written in there. You can have two hives and a nuke. Mm -hmm. A nuke is not seen as a full-size colony. It is not seen as a hive, so it doesn't count in your equation. What it is seen as is a box of resources. That's it. Now, you can take a nuke, and we sell nukes because it is the core or the nucleus of a colony, and you can use it to start another colony. But the intent in this and in what he's talking about in his email and also what the code for the city is talking about is a resource hive. And what you end up doing is early in the spring, you can take one of your hives, you can take that older queen, original queen from the hive and put her into the split mm -hmm. and you don't give her a ton of resources or a ton of anything. You give her like one frame of food and one frame of brood and that's it. And the rest of it, they have to build out. And then your other okay. colony either raises a new queen or you put a new queen in there. Now, you've got this five-frame box, and you've got two frames in there full, and she keeps laying, and you keep feeding them and doing things to them, and they'll eventually draw out the third frame, and then they'll draw out the fourth frame, and they'll keep getting bigger and bigger. But the whole point of it is a resource hive. Mm -hmm. So if one of your other colonies needs more bees, then you steal a solid frame of capped brood from yeah. that nuke, and you give it to the other hive, and you put an empty frame back in the nuke. Right. So the nuke is constantly losing resources throughout the season, which means it never grows. It never gets big enough that it needs a full-size hive, because if they've got a solid frame of capped food in there, and another colony needs food, or you're doing another split, guess where it comes from? It comes out of that nuke mm -hmm. and goes to that other colony. Mm -hmm. So that nuke is literally just there to support the other hives. And then at the end of the year that nuke gets recombined with whatever, and the queen goes away. So that's the whole point of the nuke for a supplemental or, or a resource-type hive is just for emergency purposes. Also, 
if something horrible happens and one of your colonies loses its queen, well, guess what? You've got, got a, queen. a queen in that nuke, and now you can combine that back to that colony and save it. So that's the whole point of having this little supplemental nuke and purposely managing and manipulating it to keep it small. And that's how you keep it small, is managing and manipulating it and stealing the resources to give them to your other colonies to bolster the colony. Because you're, anytime, one mega-sized colony mm -hmm. will always outperform average colonies. Always. Mm -hmm. Well, so if you want to make it a mega-sized colony, what does it need? It needs more bees. And it gets more bees by giving it all that capped brood. You can just take it out. And you need to obviously leave enough in there that the nuke itself still has a new generation every now and then, too. You don't want to rob it to the point where it's going to starve itself out and die. Um, but, yeah, that's that's how you manage it and keep it small. You're not supposed to be pumping it full of life and trying to grow it into a big colony. You're supposed to be using it as an emergency resource for other ones. So that's how you keep it from turning into a full and you turn And the bees in the nuke are Italians because they make more brood. No. No, no. I, it would eat itself out. You would have to. You need it as no, a, you're, you're overthinking it. <laughs> yeah, but I'm thinking it as, no, a, as a farmer or a rancher. Yeah, but you're still I'm, overthinking it. I know. Re regardless, <laughs> it does not matter what the race of bee is inside that box. It doesn't matter. It's just bees. Well, regardless of that, it yeah. doesn't matter. Yeah. Because it doesn't matter how quickly they're producing the brood or how slowly they're producing it. You are still taking away from it. Right. So it doesn't matter if it's an Italian or if it's a Carniolan or a Russian or whatever. They're all, at the peak of the season, going to make a lot of bees. The Italians just start earlier. They don't make more bees. They start, start making early. bees oh, earlier. Okay, I see what you're saying. Yeah. So the, the, that's the only difference in why the commercial guys like the Italians is because they start earlier in the season. But if you are a backyard beekeeper and you've got a colony and you want that colony to have lots of food and they did great all the way through the winter starting earlier in the season means you have to monitor that food stores better and or start supplementally feeding so they don't eat themselves out of house and home if it is a russian or a carniolan it's a negative to the commercial guys because the the russians and carniolans they wait until later in the year when there's truly an actual nectar flow starting before they really explode with their population which is better for a backyard beekeeper because then you know they can manage those resources better over winter because that's what they're designed to do where the italian isn't so it's a trade off on what are you in it for, right? If you're mm -hmm. in it for the honey and you want as much honey as possible, those Italians are going to wake up earlier. Mm -hmm. They're going to start earlier in the season, which means they can be split earlier in the season. And so there, there's all these little nuances to it. But again, backyard beekeeper, it you're just dealing with one hive. And so it doesn't matter if you have an Italian in there, if you have a Carniolan, a Russian, a Cardovan, any of them, it's mm -hmm. fine because you're just focusing on that one hive and you can manage what that hive is doing or pay attention to the nuances. And if you do have an Italian and they go crazy early in the year, then you just know you need to step in and start feeding them. Mm -hmm. Or if you have a Russian and, and they still have plenty of food, then you know you're good up until the point where you do want them to start expanding. And if you want it to happen earlier, you can start artificially stimulating that, or you can let them go and let nature take its course and let them expand whenever they would normally do so. But that's it. it there's... Literally no difference in the amount of bees as far as the overall race of bees go. There, it doesn't. It literally, all of them are going to max out one deep brood box. Average colony size is going to be thirty thousand bees. It doesn't matter what type of bee you mm -hmm. put in there. And then if you have the double boxes and it's peak of the season, sixty thousand bees. 
And again, race is irrelevant on that part. So, such fun. <laughs> I think that answers all of Frank's questions. Um, thank you, Frank. We greatly appreciate you sending that in. And uh, it's always really cool to get these responses and things from overseas and the different countries and stuff. Like, it's it's a little bit mind-boggling to think that, you know, people over there are listening and care and enjoy it and and that's yeah, awesome. They talk with an accent. We don't. Actually, I had somebody inform me that um, you, sir, do definitely have an accent. I do? Yes, you do. <laughs> I imagine that. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. yeah. Um, and it's not just an American accent. It's Texas accent. <laughs> it is a redneck accent. Yeah. <laughs> and that's why our intro says, what happens when you take a redneck fishing guide? Pretty much. <laughs> and pair him up. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Um, that is absolutely true. All right, guys. Well, I think, um, I have absolutely no idea what the title of this episode is. Um, it was a, basically an update of the conference and an update of the pollinators movie and a Go listener question. Whenever you can see it. Yeah. So, uh, I'll have to, <laughs> it'll be a surprise to all of us, whatever I happen to name this. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but we'll, we will talk to you guys next week on, uh, another episode of the hive jive. Mm -hmm. Y'all be good. Be safe. Be warm. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> See y'all. It's time for our guys to buzz off. But don't fret. The Hive Jive journey continues with new episodes Mondays every month. Until then, you can follow along with the guys on Facebook and Instagram at The Hive Jive. Thanks for listening and be safe out there. <laughs>